Hey, deserving listeners! Today, I'm going to answer patron emails about the following things. These are this is kind of a mini deep dive on three different issues. One is repetition compulsion. Another is evidence-based psychodynamic therapy, and the third is Oedipus complex. I grouped these three patron emails together and allowed myself to, you know, look into all the various literature and to really contemplate these. Three things, particularly repetition compulsion and Oedipus complex. As I, I do talk about rep- repetition compulsion, and I get a lot of questions about Oedipus complex. And so today I'm going to go into detail about that. But I want to reserve this for patrons of the podcast because I want to reward you for becoming a patron of the podcast. So if you are a patron, you're going to hear this full episode, and if you're not, this episode will end before the content begins. And I really do apologize for that, but. If you haven't become a patron yet, do so now. Go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast, and you'll get access to this episode along with hundreds of other, you know, of our best episodes that are only available to patrons. So go to patreon.com, do it now. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone people. This first email is from patron Matt from Minneapolis. He writes, I was kind of jumping around different Patreon episodes lately, and I noticed you'd mentioned rep- repetition compulsion on a few episodes without really going much deeper into what repetition compulsion was. I'm a layperson and was hoping you could make sense of it. I'm stuck at home. I've been doing a little surface-level research on my own, and I found that it is very much a part of Freudian psychoanal- psychoanalytic theory which gave me pause. It is in vogue to trash Freud and his quote-unquote harebrained cocaine-addled theories, for example, penis envy, over-reliance on dreams, et al. Even so, I'm sure there is a lot to be learned from Freud, but maybe not. I've read repetition compulsion is sometimes referenced in schema therapy, CBT, and psychodynamic therapy of today, too. What is repetition compulsion as you see it? And is Freud kind of a joke now? In what ways have you seen repetition compulsion present itself in how we choose our intimate partners? End of email. So the first thing about Freud being a joke is people don't understand Freud. And so they – and it's intimidating to learn. And there are some things that are kind of funny about his ideas. And most people don't uh, regard some of his ideas to be uh, valid, penis envy for being one. But the thing is, is when you understand Freud, as I do, I mean, you know, people who study Freud, I study Freud and many other uh, people who also study Freud understand that Freud was a genius. He was completely on his own in the beginning for the most part. I mean, he had Breuer, he had... Uh, Charcot and Genet to look back to, but he basically invented our field. There's a reason why in the Western world we're much more uh, likely to value psychotherapy than in other parts of the world, and we have Freud and his students and his students' students and his students' students' students to thank for that. So uh, the just the the notion of talk therapy was essentially invented by Freud and his colleague Joseph Breuer. This notion that you can talk about your feelings and feel better and uh, thus not suffer anymore psychologically was 
essentially invented by Sigmund Freud and not only invented by him but also propagated through culture. His – you know, it wasn't like people accepted his ideas in the beginning. So he had to fight really hard. He had to be very smart. He had to uh, you know, write a lot and talk a lot and research a lot. But the problem was for him was that he couldn't go to a research library and look up a bunch of research on psychology or he could but the research available to him in the late 1880s was very sparse and dubious. So he, he didn't have a whole set of data to rely upon. The other thing is, is that he was, you know, uh, grew up and was born in like the mid 1800s, and thus, you know, social understandings, racism, sexism, was not nearly as understood as it is today. So he was, you know, a part of that time, and um, you know, tried to fight against it. But you know, there were some silly things that he would say over time. I'm quite positive if he were somehow still alive today. His ideas would have evolved and he would you know, be at the cutting edge in all likelihood. So yeah, there are some ideas that he put forward, but he put forward thousands of ideas, penis envy being one of them, and you know, it, it's a little silly. The other thing is, is it's hard to really understand uh, psychoanalytic theory from our modern language system. Uh, I am a scholar of Freud. I'm not a deep scholar of Freud, but you know, I read a lot of Freud. And when you read the the original translations, it's hard to really understand what he's talking about. It's it's basically speaking in a whole other language. And so I sometimes wonder if Freud were somehow if, – if I was to go back and talk to him and say, when you were saying this, was this what you were saying? Because sometimes I wonder if he was saying this or he was saying that because I've, I've heard contemporary Freudians – use penis envy or Oedipus complex, things that I don't generally regard and most others don't regard. Uh, I've, I've heard contemporary people use those terms in very intelligent, useful ways. So that's another thing. So what happens is, is that people go to graduate school and they learn a bunch of theories. And a lot of professors do not understand Freudian psychoanalytic theory or contemporary psychoanalytic theory or contemporary psychodynamic theory for that matter. It's very hard to learn. I have – as an expert, I have been called in by other professors at my university to, to provide their lectures on this – on the topic. Other professors, they will get to a point in the course where it's like, OK, now I have to talk about object relations and those professors will say, I, I don't know enough about this. Kurt, can you come and do the lecture for my class? And uh, it's because it takes a long time to get to know. There are 400 different theories, psychoanalytic theory just being one of them. And so um, it's just really hard to understand. And when we don't understand something, we have – we're in a conundrum. We can either admit it and say, I don't get it, or we can trash the theory altogether and say, I don't need to understand it. Because it's a stupid theory, and then those ideas get passed on to students, and then students teach their class. You know, when students become professors themselves, they teach this idea, and this idea has been propagated, you know, for decades. That's Freud. That Freud was stupid, and that he was harebrained, cocaine-addled uh, person, and um, penis envy. It's silly. It's it's not. 
evidence-based. You'll hear that as well. It is evidence-based in terms of the way that psychodynamic and psychoanalytic uh, therapy is conducted today. It's not as if psychodynamic therapists don't care about evidence. They do. And this notion that psychodynamic theory is not evidence-based is actually not evidence-based to say that. (laughs) Cognitive behavioral therapists, a lot of them will say that their theory is the only evidence-based theory. Not all of them will say that, but some of them will. And that's just a complete ignorance of the research. And so there's a lot of silly ideas. Now, there are ideas within Freudian theory that we want to be very uh, skeptical about, but he developed these theories 140 years ago. What's the chance that, you know, you look to certain figures in the medical research profession 140 year, years ago. Do you think all their ideas are still uphold, upheld today? No. But do you think some of their foundational ideas are still followed? Absolutely. So this notion that somehow Freud was an idiot is ignorant and uh, completely disregards what he contributed on a massive scale to the field of psychotherapy in particular. Okay. So uh, the other thing – so let's go into repetition compulsion, which was coined and developed by Freud. So essentially the repetition compulsion is the compulsion to repeat distressing past experiences, particularly relational experiences, without recognizing your own participation in the recreation. So in other words, you have a difficult past experience that was distressing in some way and – for whatever reason, we have this unconscious compulsion to recreate it uh, in the present and the future without conscious awareness of how we are participating in the recreation. So like I said, it was developed by Freud. Start, uh, he started writing about it in 1914. So that's a long time ago. <laughs> he observed with uh, patients of his – that people often engaged in self-destructive behavior. So they would uh, cause all sorts of problems in their own lives. And he see, he saw it as a quote-unquote compulsion. Now, his, his uh, definition of compulsion was different than the DSM definition, right? In DSM, we reserve the word compulsion for things like obsessive-compulsive disorder, for example. But before the DSM existed – in psychoanalysis, the word compulsion was used as a unconscious itch that just had to be itched and it wasn't necessarily – it was a more broad term. Anyway, so why would people do this? Well, Freud hypothesized because his main he, – he, his theory evolved over you know 50 years. But uh, for a good portion of that time, he believed that when we went through difficult experiences – these experiences, these memories would get kind of stuck in our psyches because we didn't know how to deal with them. We didn't know how to process the the experience. So, for example, if one was to um, have a birthday party and things went well, well, the next day you think about the birthday party and you're not complicated about it because you're just like, yeah, that was a good time. People were nice. My friends were there. I had a good time. It was good times. So you remember the memory and it 
is easy to work out in your brain as to what happened. Now let's say that you were sexually abused at the age of seven. Well, the next day or even 20 years later, the memory of it is complicated because you think maybe it was your fault. Maybe you asked for it or wait, that was my uncle and it aren't my, isn't my uncle supposed to love me? Uh, how could someone love me and do that to me? So the memory becomes very complicated and the person, if not given a chance to talk it out, will uh, repress the memory and sort of section it off from their psyche as best they can because it's too hard to think about. And so one of the ways that we can deal with it is to repeat it. It's a, it's a way of trying to unconsciously deal with the memory without having to actually deal with it, which is too complicated. So the idea was, was that because these memories become so complicated, because these traumas become unprocessed and, and the person doesn't have a way of talking about it because of shame or whatever, it, it, the, the psyche is trying to heal itself. This is not Freud's language, but this is essentially what he was saying. And as the psyche is trying to heal itself, one of the options available to it, because the self isn't talking about it with people, the the self, the ego, the psyche will just recreate it as a way of expressing the memory, as a way of, of feeling the feelings, as a way of getting over what happened. But of course, this doesn't really work because – it just cre- recreates more masochistic damage to the self because you essentially, you know, if you were sexually abused at the age of seven and then you are attracted to se- sexually abusive people in the future or just abusive people in the future, you're just recreating other abusive moments and you're, you'll have more memories to repress. And this is generally what masochism is called, and Freud developed that as well. So another repetition – so that was the main thing that he observed. He also observed people having nightmares about traumas and that was seen as a repetition compulsion. So it mainly was like he would see people being traumatized. They, the trauma would be recreated by the person later in life and he called that repetition compulsion. Later it was also more generalized repetition compulsion to transference. So – uh, transference, if you don't know, is can be considered a form of repetition compulsion. Re- transference is when you experience a difficult relational experience in your childhood, mostly with your parents. There's this compulsion to recreate it with your therapist. So if your mother was critical, then you have this compulsion to see your therapist as being critical of you when they're not being critical necessarily. And even to engage in projective identification, which is also kind of overlap with transference, to socialize your therapist into being critical of you. And so this could also be considered displacement. You know, all the defense mechanisms kind of overlap. Another defense mechanism that is seen as a repetition compulsion is what we call acting out. So a lot of people, a lot of therapists will use the term acting out, not in the Freudian sense. It's, it, when people use acting out today, they're usually talking about a kid who is externalizing, externalizing meaning that they have difficult feelings on the inside and they externalize those difficult feelings by being aggressive or something. 
But uh, in the Freudian sense, acting out is expressing through action rather than words of a memory or a conflict. So acting out also you could see as a repetition compulsion. So over the years, over a hundred and you know six years, there's been a lot written about rep- repetition compulsion, and people will use it in various different ways. They will, you know, psychoanalysis has thousands upon thousands of very intelligent writers and researchers. All of them uh, sort of retooling a lot of these terms, and so there's there's no way to go into all the different ways repetition compulsion is used throughout the literature. But I use it in a broader sense. You'll, when I use repetition compulsion in the – when I'm talking about you know, things in the podcast, I'm basically referring to pr- projective identification or a recreation of an internalization. Without going into full detail, in essence, what I'm talking about is what I was talking about earlier in terms of you go through a difficult relational experience and you have this compulsion to recreate it later in life. And there's a lot of different reasons as to why people do that according to theory and according to my observation. One is that we are attempting to create a corrective experience. So let me provide a couple different examples here. So let's say that a girl grows up and is abandoned by her father. And that was a difficult relational experience when they're growing up. And they have a complex about that growing up. They have difficulty about that. They have you know schemas of I'm abandonable, people can't be trusted, this sort of thing. And then as an adult, they have these this repetition compulsion to recreate this past relationship and it's unconscious. And let's say they find a you know relationship partner, a romantic partner who abandons them. And in that situation, they're trying to create a corrective experience by finding someone that resembles their father. But this time it'll go differently. But she goes too far by choosing someone that actually abandons her and thus compounds the original relational trauma. Now you have two men who have abandoned you. Then she goes to therapy and the she tries to socialize the therapist into abandoning her. She criticizes the therapist. She shows up late to sessions. She doesn't talk very much in session. Um, She accuses the therapist of things, all trying to get the therapist to abandon her. But the therapist knows about repetition compulsion and Freudian theory and countertransference, another idea that emerged from Freud, countertransference. And... Uh, resists that socialization to abandon the client. And in this situation, uh, it is a corrective experience for the client and she experiences a non-abandoning man even though she was subconsciously even trying to make the therapist abandon her. So we have two situations. One, uh, repetition compulsion resulted in compounding the trauma and another resulted in an actual corrective experience. Let me give another example. So let's say that she uh, you know, knows a little bit more about her issue of abandonment. And she – or actually, let's not even say that. Let's just say that she's completely unaware of her abandonment repetition compulsion. 
she finds someone who seems like might abandon her. And so she, so she cultivates a relationship with that person. But for whatever reason, that person is differentiated enough or healthy enough that they don't actually abandon her. And even though she's trying to get that person to abandon her, for whatever reason, their relationship doesn't work out that way. And the, you know, this woman, she has this corrective experience. So we, we will repeat these past difficult relationships, hoping subconsciously that it will be a corrective experience because corrective experiences will heal us. And so we have this natural tendency to want to heal for our distress and our difficult um, internalizations. The problem is, is that if you're not conscious of this process, you might go too far with the recreation and this compound the difficulty, if that makes sense. Okay. The second reason why we have a repetition compulsion to recreate past relational experiences is because it's the devil you know. It's comfortable and it's more predictable. And so when you're in a relationship or when you're looking for a relationship, you know, let's say that both of, again, let's go to the abandoning father. Well, the woman grows up and she wants to fall in love and she starts to date a guy who isn't very abandoning. Well, this is uncomfortable to her. She doesn't know what this means. Uh, it's not very predictable. It's a completely different world. And she is, she's not conscious of this, but she's actually uncomfortable with a healthy, uh, a healthy guy, a nice guy. It doesn't feel right to her. It's not – it doesn't look familiar to her and she – mistakes the lack of familiarity with a lack of comfort or a lack of being in love. And then she meets another guy who gives off signals of future abandonment. This feels comfortable. It feels more predictable. It's more familiar. And she mistakes that for something that's good when in fact it's actually something that's bad. Another reason why we recreate past relationships that were bad is to defensively make the internal world external. When we have these internal memories that are plaguing us, we don't know what to do with them. The psyche wants to get rid of them because when we're left alone, then we're just sitting there in our own abandonment schema juices, if you will. And so we need to externalize it. It helps to externalize it. It helps to uh, – the the way of – one way of seeing it is that it's easier to hate a partner who is abandoning you than to hate yourself for being abandonable and hating yourself for being an abandoning person. And that's that's a, another part of this problem, and this is where projective identification comes in, is that – and object relations – is that when you're abandoned, you tend to become the abandoner subconsciously. Anyway, the, f- the fourth reason why we repeat past relationships defensively is to distract us from the internal strife of the construct. So as we have this internal object, um, you know, uh, conflict between, you know, I hesitate to go into too much detail here, but essentially we have this internalized relationship that is difficult for us and it distracts us to make it external. Okay. The fifth reason is that uh, when circumstances are similar, we basically use these things as a template or protocol for relationships. It's like if you learned that love equals abandonment as a young child, then you you look for things that have abandonment as a part of it because that means love to you. So a, a way of another way of looking at this is 
when we're young, let's say that um, let's say that your parents played a lot of board games with you. They also you also went on vacations together. You also ate dinner uh, every night at five o'clock, and your parents were very critical of you. Well, your template of love includes eating dinner, playing board games, going on vacations, and being critical. You know, the 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 three year old child can't differentiate the three good things with the with the fourth bad thing because the child doesn't know, and so the child subconsciously just codes all those aspects as this is what love is. And thus, when you're older, you will look for that template because you need all those elements to indicate to you that this is a loving relationship. And and so whatever bad things that went on with your parents will be lumped in with it. And so for these five reasons, in my book, we will compulsively repeat past difficulties. So um, a common example that I'll close with is, again, you have an abandoning parent and the person grows up and starts to want to date. And the first ability that they have subconsciously is they actually have the ability to sniff out emotionally abandoning people. Uh, For those of you listening out there who can relate to this, uh, you, you know what this is like. Let's say you had a, an abusive parent and then you're like, f- for whatever reason, you just noticed that when it comes to a hundred potential partners, you know, you go to a party and there's like, say, a dozen different guys that are potential guys that you might give your phone number to. For whatever reason, you find that every single time you manage to bat your eyelashes and give your phone number to the, the very person in that room who is going to abuse you. And you know statistically that abusive men are actually rare. But you, you're wondering, like, how do I always end up not only being attracted to these abusive people, but when I'm in a room of 12 men, I somehow know which one of those guys is going to be abusive. Well, because a lot of our perceptions are subconscious and – there are certain markers of an abusive person that are out of our awareness. And it's hard to know exactly what those things are, but you know, we could speculate of like the way someone kind of holds themselves, maybe the way they dress, maybe, uh, I don't know, the, how loud their voice is or the way that they talk to you when they first meet you, all these kinds of things. So you sniff out that person – uh, you just sort of know subconsciously. Then as they exhibit, as you date them, as you as they exhibit those signs, you become massively attracted to them, fall deeply in love, infatuatingly in love with that person, partially because you're in love, but also partially because this person is going to give you a wonderful opportunity to engage in all five of those reasons as to why we repeat those past relationships. Most notably that we're trying to recreate the past so that we can have a new result that will provide a corrective experience. But again, if you're not conscious of this process, you're at risk of recreating the relationship in its entirety, including the bad things and therefore compounding. But anyway, so 
the person feels very attracted. Not only are you just generally attracted, but also subconsciously because your subconscious is like, ooh, we're really going to be able to use our projective identification with this person because they, they very much resemble my father, that kind of thing. Then as we engage in a relationship with them, we actually socialize them or manipulate them to agree with our projection. We will make them uh, even more abandoning of us by criticizing them or pushing their buttons, that kind of thing. They would have abandoned us anyway in all likelihood, but we want to accelerate that process or really make sure it happens by subconsciously socializing them to agree with our template of what love is supposed to look like. This is all subconscious, by the way. Then we become very hurt and upset by it and we break up. And then we have this narrative that the other person was evil and that I was victimized. That person did a very evil thing. I was victimized. Okay, I'm not going to date that person again. Uh, I'm not going to date a person like that person again. I deserve better. And without any kind of therapy and without any kind of self-awareness, the person will just go on to the next recreation. And by the time they're 45, they have, they've had a whole string of mostly abandoning relationships and they're wondering why. And there's a lot of different conclusions one can make. One is – it's me, I need to go to therapy. Another conclusion is all men are evil and that's, and that's that, you know. Or I don't know, there's various other conclusions one can draw. Those are two main ones. So this is a very, very common thing. And when I – so when I'm using the term repetition compulsion, in its entirety, this is what I'm talking about. All right, let's go on to another email here. This is from patron Robert. He asks, I just finished listening to your deep dive on attachment theory. I am a graduate student and I took notes as I was listening. In the attachment deep dive, you shared that the theories you use are interpersonal, humanistic, relational psychoanalysis, intersubjective, dynamic, and long-term relational therapies. As a graduate student, I was curious if you would share what areas and techniques of relational psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapy that you pull from these, ther these therapies. Are all of the, the theories, including attachment theory, accepted when working for a company such as a hospital, or will they expect shorter version, versions such as solution-focused or cognitive behavior therapy? Are they all evidence-based? Some sites say that they are evidence-based, and some say that they are not. That is confusing as a student learning all of this. End of email. So there's a lot to unpack here. The first thing I'll say is that workplaces vary widely regarding their privileging of different therapies. I have worked for, for a number of different employers, and I never had anybody disparage me for using psychodynamic theory. Um, but those are just the set of employers that I've worked for. Might some workplaces be absolutely oriented towards other kinds of therapies? For sure. Uh, for better or for worse, pretty much. Now, in general, when you're working in the United States and you're working for a larger organization, there tends to be a gravitation towards cognitive behavior therapy. And make no doubt about it, CBT works for a lot of different things. And I, I you know, you, you rattled off all the things that I talk about, you know, all the theories that I use in therapy. But those are 
those are all the theories that are related to attachment and psychodynamic theory. I also use solution focus. I love solution focus therapy. I love systems theory. I love cognitive theory. I love behavioral therapy. I love um, gestalt and humanistic and person-centered and existential. These are all wonderful things that I use all the time. Uh, there's a lot of overlap between these theories. And so so I don't – I use all the theories. And people who scoff at that, I, I challenge them to poke holes in not only my conception of, of how people change, my theory of change, but also my technique. Uh, there's all this stigma and dogma around this. And I've, and I've had you know, very big arguments with colleagues and other people who claim that you cannot integrate these things. And I'm living proof that you can. And many other people are. John Norcross actually proposes that all theories or the main ones should be integrated. Um, he's a renowned psychologist, uh, author for APA and um, is at the cutting edge of integrative therapy. And the problem with that is that it's hard to learn one theory, let alone 15. Uh, but anyway, uh, and so and some employers are definitely going to privilege CBT for a lot of reasons. One is that it's a lot easier to write about in your notes. You know, it's much easier to say we talked about different cognitive strategies to combat their negative self-talk, that kind of thing. That's a very easy thing to write. It's a very easy thing to understand when someone is reviewing the file. It's much harder to describe a psychodynamic long-term approach to self-esteem issues because you've got to talk about, well, where does the self-esteem issue come from and, and what other kinds of unconscious things are going on in, in this situation. So CBT just is just, you know, as we go towards more managed care and more sort of corporate care, if you will, the simpler the theory, the, the easier it is going to be, you know, um, sort of propagated through the system. So uh, I recommend, Robert, that if you're interested in psychodynamic and attachment theory, uh, by all means, go into it. But definitely also get good at CBT. Um, you also mentioned solution-focused. Solution-focused is... Uh, not well understood. A lot of ther a lot of workplaces claim they're using solution focus, but they are not. Um, just uh, in a nutshell, the 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 foundation of solution focused is that you, as a therapist, do not provide solutions. Never do you provide or even hint at provide at you providing a solution. A lot of people perceive solution focused therapy to be the therapist essentially providing solutions and skills. You would never do that as a solution-focused therapist. Solution-focused therapists uh, focus on the solutions that the client comes up with themselves. You focus on the fact that the client already has the solution, and you would never propose an idea to a client that would completely eliminate the, the therapeutic value of, of solution-focused therapy. And so I find that a lot of agencies will say, we use solution-focused therapy, and then I I've, I watch what they do and I'm like, you're, not only are you not doing solution-focused, you're actually doing the antithesis of solution-focused therapy. In a lot of ways, cognitive behavior therapy is the antithesis of solution-focused because CBT, as a therapist, you often provide skills. Now, the other thing I'll say about CBT just while I'm on this topic is that true CBT 
does not provide skills, does not necessarily teach skills to clients, which is what a lot of agency-based therapy is being reduced to. Essentially, um, there's this all this talk about CBT and, you know, you got to teach skills, you got to teach coping skills. And those are great, you know, but they often ignore the bigger issue. I mean, you know, a 25-year-old comes in talking about how he's depressed and lonely and you're like, okay, well, let's talk about skills. And you're like, okay. And you propose skills of like how to talk better about yourself and how to maybe motivate yourself to do things that are good, like going exercising and stuff. And okay, this is good advice, but what's the chance that the 25-year-old has never heard of the ideas that they need to exercise and think positively? <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous if that's all that you do. There's nothing wrong with suggesting that. Obviously, addressing that is a good idea. But if someone comes into my office and they're chronically lonely, usually it's much deeper than that. And that's where psychodynamic and, you know, to some extent, attachment and humanistic theory come into play. Anyway, so I would – everybody, if you're in graduate school, if, if you want to assure your employment, definitely learn CBT. You know, the, uh, the chance that you're going to – you know, you go to an interview and you say, well, I love cognitive therapy and I love behavioral therapy and I also love relational theory. I also love psychodynamic theory. I try to integrate all these things. You know, it's a pretty good chance that the employer will be great, you know. Now, if you say, I am only into psychodynamic theory, well, some employers are going to be turned off by that because they are privileging of CBT. But now let's do a third situation. Let's say you say, I'm totally into CBT. Well, the chance that a employer is going to look negatively at that is pretty small because uh, on average, anecdotally for me anyway, uh, baseline, most employers are excited about a clinician who is very practical and CBT is perceived as very practical anyway. Um, you also say, you know, are these therapies evidence-based? I've already gone into this a little bit, but let me go into more detail. So it's ridiculous that they're, you know, you're talking about how some websites are saying that psychodynamic ther- therapy is not evidence-based. And this is an unscientific, ignorant, idiotic thing to say. So before me, I have this book and I recommend it to people if they want the full kind of rundown of the evidence. So it's called The Handbook of Evidence-Based Psychodynamic Psychotherapy, uh, edited by Levy and Ablon by Humana Press. So The Handbook of Evidence-Based Psychodynamic Psychotherapy. It's not a cheap book on Amazon, but it's a great book and it's sort of the definitive resource. Um, published in <laughs> what year is this? Edited by Gabbard, who you know is one of our main people here. Uh, published in two thousand nine, so pretty recent. And uh, it's a handbook, meaning that it has several different authors coming at it from different several different angles. But the first chapter is what I'm looking at right now, and it, and it provides an overview of all the different evidence. And there's s- strong evidence that. Psychodynamic therapy works for major depression, other depressive disorders, pathological grief, anxiety disorders, uh, stress, post, you know, PTSD, somatoform disorders, 
bulimia, anorexia, borderline, other cluster, C personality disorders, avoidant personality disorder, substance disorder, substance use disorders, and other issues. And they cite several different randomized controlled trials as uh, you know the gold standard of of treatment evaluation, finding that there are pretty good effect sizes for these issues and more. So CBT has similar evidence. Now, CBT has a lot more research on it because CBT just lends itself to research a lot more easily because you can do CBT in 10 weeks, which is a typical randomized controlled trial span of time. Psychodynamic therapy can take five years, so it's much more expensive and much harder to get people to sign up for that sort of thing. But there are plenty of studies, and since 2009, when this was written, there's even, you know, there's probably a double amount of studies since then, since research is, is just ever exponentially increasing in its volume. So, so much evidence that psychodynamic therapy works for people. Make no doubt about it. And anyone who claims differently has a bone to pick and they're, they're biased or stupid or ignorant or they've been told the wrong thing or who knows. But it's, it just boggles the mind that so many people claim that psychodynamic therapy doesn't have ev- evidence and that it's basically accepted among even professors. I've heard so many professors say this, this bullshit line and it's like, did you even Google it? Just Google it. <laughs> and you'll realize that there's at least a debate, if not, you know. Anyway, so uh, Robert, you ask, what do I pull from psychodynamic therapy? Well, so many things. And all these things I'm about to rattle off are essentially only within psychodynamic therapy. Other forms of therapy do not value this, at least in the way that psychodynamic therapy does. The first off is the relationship between the client and the therapist is very important to psychodynamic therapy, i.e. corrective experiences, which I was talking about earlier. Other forms of therapy either uh, downplay it or they don't even regard it at all. Cognitive therapy, there's it's it's not mentioned at all. Now, some cognitive therapists will point out that the relationship is important, but, uh, but that, you know, that can be rare. Anyway, so if, if you believe as a therapist that the relationship between client and therapist is important, you are either a psychodynamic therapist or a humanistic therapist or attachment-based therapist. Anyway, another idea that I pull from psychodynamic therapy is that insight helps. A lot of other therapies either don't emphasize it or they outright say insight means nothing. Behavioral therapy, for example... Uh, is known for saying that, that insight and interpretation means nothing. It's useless. But insight absolutely helps. When I go to therapy and my therapist points out to me, huh, it's interesting that you're looking at it that way because that's not the way I would look at it. And I'm like, huh, well, that's a new insight. I didn't know that my perspective was kind of different in that way. I wonder why I have that. Well, maybe it's because of this past experience. Oh, yeah. And then it really helps Knowledge is power and insight really helps and it begins with interpretation. Also, the notion that the past affects the present, meaning that your early childhood experiences affect your personality and your relationship issues. 
This is a solid attachment psychodynamic based idea. Humanistic therapy doesn't even acknowledge this. In fact, the foundation of humanistic theory actually rejects this idea outright. Cognitive behavioral therapy, if you extend into schema therapy, but schema therapy, so, so cognitive therapists will claim schema therapy as, you know, this, this broader point of view, but, but it's clear that schema therapy is a psychodynamic, at least influenced theory. Um, so, you know, cognitive, uh, when cognitive therapy first came out, they completely rejected psychodynamic theory. And then over time, cognitive therapists realized, oh, we're really missing a big, you know, they started talking about core beliefs and this kind of thing. But then eventually they're like, no, I think early relational experiences actually do affect one's personality. But they, they reframed it and reworded it as schemas. But there's a whole tradition in psychodynamic and object relations theory that has to do with what we call schemata or some people even just called it schemas. So anyway, schema therapy can be argued as essentially a psychodynamic theory that was reworded and reworked for cognitive you know, therapists. I fully stand behind schema therapy. I love schema therapy. I really like it for that reason. Anyway, the other idea that I pull from psychodynamic theory is defense mechanisms, projective identification, displacement, transference, countertransference. All these are well-observed in human nature and are very useful ways of looking at things. Also, attachment theory. It can be very uh, easily argued that attachment theory is uh, born from and a part of psychodynamic theory. And if you believe in attachment theory, then in my book, you essentially believe in a portion of psychodynamic theory. Also, the notion of transference, countertransference. The notion that clients will transfer onto you and you will have a reaction to that transference. And to analyze that as a therapist is very important. Also, the notion that therapists have issues. So this is where relational, more contemporary psychoanalysis and psychodynamic theory comes into play. So this notion that you... You bring your issues as a therapist to the table, that you're not a blank slate, you're not objective, you're not perfect. And both client and therapist create a relational experience that is influenced by both of their conscious minds and their unconscious minds and their issues and their biases. Also, the notion of the unconscious. This is clearly a psychodynamic idea that I absolutely will use in my conceptualizations. Also, the development of the ego or the self. Whenever you hear ego, just think self or psyche. People are confused by ego. They're like, what is the? I don't understand this ego. It's just self. It's just, I think it literally translates from some other, maybe Austrian or German or something directly into, it just means self. So the development of the ego, the development of the self is an important psychodynamic idea that I use all the time. Other uh, theories don't really care about the development of the self. Humanistic theory, person-centered, like I said, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, DBT, these kinds of uh, methods and theories, they're not really concerned about how the self develops and describing and conceptualizing the ego. And many, many more ideas. So those are the ideas that I pull from psychodynamic therapy. And anyone says that it's not evidence-based is wrong. And anyone says that psychodynamic theory is irrelevant 
is not uh, a smart person in my book. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, since we're doing a lot of emails about psychodynamic theory, I thought I would uh, look for another email along those lines, and I did. Patron Andrea from Mexico, she writes, could you talk a bit about the Oedipus complex or phase? I am a 27-year-old queer female. My therapist said at some point that she thinks I'm having some sort of regressive Oedipus phase with my roommate, something I couldn't get through when I was a kid. Because my mom died when I was two and my family got complicated and a lot of attachment wounds and emotional neglect happened. My therapist is a systemic family and couples therapist with a lot of background in psychodynamic theory. Almost everything you talk about in your podcast is exactly the way my therapist handles things. End of email. So, Patron Andrea, I don't know exactly what your therapist is referring when they're talking about you perhaps having, uh, you know, perhaps suffering from an Oedipus complex. So, and I don't have enough information. I mean, all you said was that your mom died when you were two and you had a lot of attachment wounds and emotional neglect growing up. There's not enough information in there. To, I mean, that's certainly uh, grounds for an Oedipus complex to develop, but the specifics of that and as, and as to why you would have some sort of regressive Oedipus phase regarding your roommate, it's, there's just too many things, too many unknowns. But in general, let's talk about the Oedipus complex here. So the Oedipus complex, it, it, it usually is uh, referred to the years between about two and a half years old to about six years old. But really, the Oedipus complex or the Oedipus phase happens throughout our lives, particularly from the age of about two on. The Oedipus uh, phase was developed by uh, Sigmund Freud in 1896. 1896. So I just want to point that out. <laughs> just, just remember, <laughs> this is something that was written by someone born in the mid-1800s and written about in 1896. During this time, Sigmund Freud went through a period of self-analysis, partly because he didn't have anyone that could analyze him because he was one of the only psychoanalysts at the time and also because I think he just wanted to think about things and he wanted to, as all of us do, particularly you listeners out there, want to work on things. You know, you want to work on yourself and Freud wanted to do that. He discovered during this self-analysis that he was jealous of his father because his father had access to his mother. He discovered that he wanted more contact with his mother and he was jealous that his father had access to his mother, that sort of thing. And he dug down deep and developed a narrative that he secretly wanted to kill his father and have sex with his mother. So this is very particular to Freud. And I just want to point out that, again, in the beginning, his observation was he felt in competition with his father for his mother's love. But since Freud was very much oriented towards sexuality, he framed it in a sexual way. Now, whether or not he let it, he meant it literally as if he wanted to have sex with his mother or he just wanted some kind of physical pleasure with his mother. I mean, all, you know, all children want physical pleasure from their parents. They want to be held. They want to be cuddled. They want to be, you know, they want their hair to be, they want, you know, they want their parents to 
run their hands through their hair or they want to be picked up and put on their shoulders or they want to wrestle with their parents, you know. And it's hard to know exactly if Freud meant actually having sex, intercourse, or if he meant more of a physical affection union. It's, it's, it's hard to tell. But anyway, so basically he defined the Oedipus phase as the unconscious desire for sexual union with the opposite sex parent and the disappearance or the death of the same sex parent. Basically, it's a fear of being sexually negated by your same sex parent. And in a good family, the child resolves this conflict well enough to love both parents and feel safe with both genders. So again, he observed in his own self-analysis that he was jealous of his father because his father had access to his mother and he wanted – Sigmund Freud wanted more contact with his mom. He extrapolated from that and used sexual language, whether or not he meant it actually, literally as sexual, and then he defined it as such. And then he and then he extrapolated from that and generalized it to all humans. He believed that every young boy wanted to kill his father and wanted to have sex with his mother and and that every young girl wanted to kill their mother and want to have sex with their dad. So this is what we call confirmation bias, meaning that he he believed this to be his experience and then when he actually treated other patients, he would kind of look for data that confirmed this uh, you know this bias that he had and he found a lot of data. He found that a lot of his patients had the same condition that he suffered from. And this is a common compulsion that we all go through it. We're looking for validation and we're, we we see what we want to see in the outside world and we disregard data that, you know, contradicts what we're what we're trying to prove, and it seems that Sigmund Freud was guilty of this. In the subsequent years, pretty much starting from the early 20th century, the uh, the ideas of the Oedipus phase and the Oedipus complex were criticized as being sexist. You know, it's male oriented. Jung actually tried to come up with the Electra complex to acknowledge that women exist on the planet, and Freud rejected that. Not that Freud didn't acknowledge women, but he just wanted his terminology to be the way that it was. Um, but yeah, it's it's so it's pretty male oriented. It's also uh, the the idea. So Freud actually def, uh, defined what a healthy resolution was to this phase of life. And he pretty much defined healthy resolution for men as being assertive and for women as being passive. Uh, Freud was a product of his time and was – although he was very – he was kind of progressive about homosexuality in some ways. He had some contradictory statements of homosexuality and kind of progressive regarding gender uh, roles. He was still quite stuck in the past and believed that – not only do people need to be heterosexual and that homosexuality might be a pathology and, and a result of a, of a negative Oedipus complex experience, but also that men are supposed to be assertive and women, women are supposed to be passive. That's just the way that it is. Um, it's also heterosexist in the way that he frames all relationships as male-female parents, right? And today we have many different configurations of that. 
It's also uh, criticized in that it suggests that children want to have sex with their parents, which is pretty outrageous to a lot of people, including myself. And it also was used at the time and later to blame victims of sexual abuse. Uh, There were times when Freud seemingly would be talking with a patient who was revealing to him that they had been sexually abused by their parents and Freud would conceptualize it as a fantasy, as a delusion that the patient had and that it was connected to the Oedipus complex. You know, In other words, uh, so you know, a woman would come in for psychoanalysis with Sigmund Freud and she would reveal that she had been sexually abused by her father. And sometimes he would absolutely acknowledge that and um, came to learn that sexual abuse was really quite common in families unbeknownst to the wider public, including today to a lot of extent. And uh, But with some of his patients, he would frame this uh, you know, revelation, you know, this, this disclosure from the patient as evidence of an Oedipus complex that was unresolved and the patient was just having a fantasy of having sex with their father and wasn't actually sexually abused because it, remember that according to him, all young girls have a fantasy, have a desire to have sex with their fathers. And when things go badly between them, they might um, invent a delusion that they did have sex with their fathers to, to satisfy that wish that they have. Of course, this is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, Freud was on his own, as I've been saying, and very much biased towards his own ideas. Sometimes they were um, hits and sometimes they were misses and, and this uh, you know, was part of the miss category. But in the intervening, in the intervening years, uh, particularly in the last, say, 40 years, 50 years, there have been a lot of contemporary psychoanalysts who have revised this concept. By, you know, there's been thousands of people writing about the Oedipus phase and the Oedipus complex uh, in light of more contemporary research findings and more understandings of gender. And feminist psychoanalysts, and so just if you don't know, there are uh, there's a pretty large feminiz- feminism contingent within psychoanalysis and psychodynamic theory in particular. So there are so-called feminist psychoanalysts and those people uh, would look at the Oedipus complex and revise it. And uh, so I have also revised it. I don't use it very often, honestly, because I don't fe- – I feel like it's a specific um, concept that – I don't need. But anyway, the way that I use it in a nutshell is the following. So there are two assumptions that uh, we have to have. One is is that we live in a gendered society and that children pick up those gender associations early in life. So we have to uh, you know, go off of those assumptions, which are fair to assume that – we have very clear ideas of what men are supposed to be be like and what women are supposed to be like and that children from a very early age – research finds this to be true – that from a very early age, children will learn, oh, I'm a boy and my dad is also a boy, that kind of thing. And that boys are like Iron Man and women are like Barbie, that kind of thing. OK. So in a nutshell, these are the three sort of questions that the Oedipus complex – 
addresses in my conceptualization of the concept. Number one is how does the family navigate the evolving attachments between child and parents? You know, children often will bond with one parent in particular. So you notice I'm not genderizing this because you might have two fathers or three fathers and one mother, this kind of thing. So, but, but children often do bond with one parent in particular, and I think most parents can attest to that. It doesn't always happen, but it usually does, in that one parent is there feeding the child, one parent is often identified as the person who watches over the child more often. And so this child, particularly at the age of about you know three to six months, will start to realize, oh, that's my main parent. That's the parent I go to. That's the parent I feel most safe with. Um, you know, that sort of thing. And so as that bond occurs, um, uh, there's different ideas about that. But the next phase is what happens when the child begins to include that other parent? What happens when that child begins to say, hey, there's another parent here that I can rely upon? So this is the Oedipal phase. When that child learns that, oh, there's another parent that I can depend upon. What do I do here? Because I'm really bonded to this one parent, but I want this other parent in my life too. So what, how does the family navigate that evolving attachment uh, you know, structure for the child? So keep that question in mind as we move forward. The second question is, how does the child perceive the relationship between the parents? And how is it related to their own gender? So, you know, children will look at their parents. So let's let's just look at you know two fathers, a gay uh, parent relationship, and they have a boy. Uh, you know, they've they have a boy, and the boy is looking to the parents, and the boy realizes I'm a boy, and my you know one one dad is a boy, and the other dad is also a boy. Well, each parent has their own personality and might express masculinity in different ways. The other thing is the boy realizes there's this other thing called girls. And he looks around and says, oh, my sister is a girl or uh, that girl at the – or my preschool teacher is a girl. And so how does that child perceive the relationships between the genders among uh, adults? How do my boy parents interact with my girl teacher? What does that look like? And that's another part of the Oedipus phase is that the the child not only learns there's another parent, but they also start to seriously contemplate their own place in the gendered world. And they watch the way the genders interact with each other. Okay, That's another part of the Oedipus phase. The third question is what lessons about gender – does the young child learn? As they realize that they have a penis or a labia or whatever, and they realize that their parents also have a penis or a labia or whatever, how does their working models of self and other develop? So these are the three questions. You could almost consider the second and third question kind of the same question. So if I was to reduce it to two questions, it's how does the family navigate the evolving attachments between child and parents as the child learns that there are more than one parent. And this isn't always the case. I just want to be clear because some kids are equally attached at the age of one to say, you know, both parents or even with the grandparents. But but oftentimes it is one parent over the other. 
Um, the second question is, what lessons about gender does the young child learn as they realize that they have a gender and that people around them have a gender? All right. So already this should be sounding quite a bit different than the original conceptualization that Freud put forward, but it's based on it. Okay. So, uh, and I kind of wish it wasn't called the Oedipus complex, honestly, because it it's a little silly. But it's sort of like how the United States always relies on the Constitution, psychoanalysis, and psychodynamic theory. They often rely on Freud. Freud is sort of like the Constitution, and we sort of retain that language because it's bigger than life. Anyway. So let's talk about an example, and this is one example of many possibilities, but this is a common example that I can think about. And But just know that there are so many different ways that the Oedipus complex can be conceptualized and seen in individuals. Okay, So we have a young girl, and she's two years old, and her parents are socialized to be traditional regarding gender lines. So her father is, a, is assertive sexually forward, he's loud, he's strong. Her mother is passive and pleasing, sexually passive and emotional and may be seen as weak. So father and mother have been socialized to be that way by society. At first, the child, the daughter, she bonds with her mother because her mother is in charge of taking care of her, feeding her, breastfeeding. And the father works a lot. At age two, she realizes, boom, hey, there's another parent here. There's a father. I've always known about father, and I like father. But I feel safe enough with mother that I don't really need to rely on her all the time. I kind of want to break out a little bit, and I want to bond to father. I want to bond to that guy, that other parent. And because children are black and white thinkers, she thinks of it as, you know what, I need to reject my mother to gain my father. And so mothers will sometimes lament this phase. <laughs> um, many parents have been through it, not all parents. But anyway, so the child says, okay, I reject mother and I want to be with father. And at the same time, she's realizing that she's a girl and that her mother is also a girl and her father is a boy. Her father is not like her. And again, she wants to bond with him. And she learns that he has a lot of really great qualities. He's assertive. He's sexually forward. And by sexually forward, I mean that she's observing that he's the one that kisses mommy. He's the one that, uh, you know, grabs mommy around the hips. He's the one that uh, waits for mommy to please him. You know, it's not actual sex that she's observing, but it's sexuality in the way that children will see their parents exhibit it. Anyway, so... Uh, she she learns that she is not and she will never be like her father. But she wants all of his good qualities. She wants to be assertive. She wants to be powerful. She wants to be loud. But she knows that she can never be that way. and Or she thinks that, obviously. So in this very early phase, she learn, she has this fantasy that if she can actually replace mother, she can – get close to father, which she wants attachment-wise, but also if she can be very close to father and reject mother, then she can also have his qualities as well. And again, it's, it's, just not, a, it's not a conscious, rational 
thought process, but this is what the child is going through. The child has this fantasy of possessing his strong qualities by becoming the wife to him. Now, we use these words like wife and sexuality, but we have to see it through a two-year-old or three-year-old's eyes. That the, th- the two-year-old isn't like literally I want to become a-, a wife to my father. It's more f- primal than that. Uh, you know, I just want to – I want to – I want my father to give me all the attention and I don't want to – I don't want my mommy anymore. I don't like her anymore. Okay. So you could see how, you know, this happens sometimes and you could see how Freud would extrapolate this into this weird direction since she was so sexually oriented into uh, people wanting to have sex with their fathers. Anyway, okay. So there are two scenarios that I'm going to lay out from this setup. One is bad, one is good. So in the bad scenario, the father works too much. He continues to not be very much at home and he never really bonds with the daughter even though she's desperately trying to bond with him. Also, the mother feels hurt by the rejection the daughter is giving her. And as a result, the mother rejects the daughter in reciprocation. So as the daughter is rejecting mother and going to father, she gets neither. The daughter doesn't get father because father is still working too much and doesn't get mother because mother can't handle the rejection and um, the relationship is diminished between daughter and, and mother. She develops a negative Oedipus complex. As an, as an adult, this can manifest in a lot of different ways. She is kind of stuck in that phase where she feels weak and worthless as a female, as a woman, and she is con- and she's still trying to possess the strength of men. And so as an adult, she tries to seduce men, maybe sometimes older men who resemble her, her father. She's trying to get close to them. She's trying to win them over. And, and it's, this, it's this holdover from when she was a child trying desperately to bond with father. She might also be competitive with women and she might be overly passive and maybe histrionic and overly seductive. Okay, so that's One particular scenario of a child manifesting in one particular result as an adult. There are so many other manifestations. Okay, let's go to a good scenario. So father is uh, attuned and realizes that he needs to cut back on his hours at work and he bonds well with the daughter. Mother withstands the temporary, temporary rejection well. The parents don't fight too much about the child. And this is a good scenario. And as an adult... The child does not develop a negative Oedipus complex and she trusts all genders. She doesn't have any notable self-destructive behaviors relationship-wise. She is able to be assertive while retaining her femininity, if you will, you know, her feminine identity. And she's a well-rounded person who expresses herself through a femininity lens but uh, and is proud of her femininity and also likes masculinity, likes men, maybe has some aspects of masculinity. So you understand that that makes sense, right? The way that I laid it out, that makes sense. If Freud were alive today and was and was allowed to evolve his theories along with 
research and further understanding of gender and and heteronormativism, heteronormativism, <laughs> heterosexism and homophobia, I am quite positive that he would have evolved his his perspective. The problem is, is we have a snapshot of Freud's ideas going back 120 years and stands to reason that he just didn't really get it yet because he didn't have a lot of data yet. So that's this is the way people understand Oedipus Complex today. Again, in a nutshell, to reduce it to two questions, it's how does the family navigate the evolving attachment between child and parents between the ages of like two and three or two and five? As the child expands their attachments to other people, how does the family navigate that? Is the child allowed to reject their primary attachments temporarily? It Does the child gain these other attachments? Uh, so that's an important part of it. The other thing is what lessons about gender does the young child learn as they watch people uh, interacting – uh, and they associate gender as they associate their own gender with what they're watching. Um, what do they see and, and what lessons do they learn? Okay. So that is the Oedipus Complex. And thank you, patron Andrea from Mexico, or Andrea, for giving me an opportunity to talk about Oedipus Complex because I do not think I have ever talked about it on the podcast before. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's true. All right, so that is that episode about three different psychodynamic ideas. Let me know what you think. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. Mm-hmm.